this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast i'm g sampath your host for today's episode 84 year old tribal rights activist father stan swami died yesterday in custody in the middle of his long battle for medical bail stan swami a jesuit priest had worked with tribals in jharkhand for over 5 decades organizing them for land water and forest rights the national investigation agency nia accused him of having links with the maoists and arrested him in connection with the bima koregaon case last october he was charged under the anti terror law the unlawful activities prevention act or up uapa as it is known swami was suffering from parkinson's disease and had applied for bail multiple times but his pleas were rejected now after he passed away in custody there has been a lot of outrage with people holding the government and the judiciary jointly culpable for his death so what were the reasons he was unable to get bail On the one hand we keep hearing about the principle that bail is the rule and jail is the exception and on the other hand it is difficult to imagine a more fitting candidate for bail an 84 year old frail old man suffering from parkinson's disease who posed zero flight risk to better understand the legal and other tangles that could have contributed to this tragedy we have with us k venkatramanan associate editor at the hindu also known here as kv Kevi welcome to in focus yeah thank you uh kevi we will come to the judiciary and the judicial aspects in a, in a while but firstly uh, i wanted to know what exactly was the government's problem in letting an 84 year old man with parkinson's disease get bail so that he can get medical treatment of the kind he deserves why oppose bail in the first place uh i suppose it flows out of the government's hard line against what it believes is left wing trend extremism you know uh, it has always been uh, you know thought of at least in the last two decades that left wing extremism poses a great threat to the indian state uh it's quite a tenuous link that they are trying to make between uh, an incident uh, that took place in pune on january 1 2018 after you know uh, some allegedly provocative speeches were made uh, at the elgar parishad you remember that incident i suppose Right. So in the course of that investigation they were trying to fix responsibility on some people who may have incited violence and uh, somehow uh, they claim the police there claim that they found incriminating material uh, implicating some of these people uh, who are now you know accused in the Bhima Koregaon case that they were involved in a larger maoist plot that they were aiding their uh, struggle that they were uh, assisting their funding and all that so i suppose the belief that this is part of a wider maoist conspiracy to overthrow the government that is at work here and they didn't want to give any quarter to any of the accused even though many of them have a, a distinguished record of you know uh, of activism of uh, advocacy for people's rights of dalit rights of tribal rights and all that uh, despite that i think the whole idea was that this was a good opportunity to go after those who are believed to be you know uh, representing the interests of the maoists and the, what is pejoratively termed as urban nexels in right wing parlance i suppose this was at work 
Bivindi. This is the reason that they have been vehemently opposing bail. And uh, it, it happened even in the case of another octogenarian who was who is now under uh, a six-month entry in bail, Varavara Rao, the poet from Telangana. Right. So if uh, if the NAA has laid down a hard line uh, to combat uh, left-wing extremism, uh, that's uh, I suppose uh, that's fair enough. I mean they they have uh, they have the mandate to go for it. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, uh, the NAA sought uh, Stan Swami's custody for interrogation and investigation, and that's how uh, they brought him from Ranchi to Bombay. But once they brought him to Bombay, uh, they did not uh, even seek his custody. You know, they just directly sent him. Uh, to Taloja jail where he's been there uh, ever since and uh, why would you arrest someone and not take his custody for interrogation and oppose him, his bail i mean even from nas perspective i mean i'm just trying to understand what is the purpose being achieved in keeping him in jail without interrogating or coming up with a charge sheet yeah uh, in his case, yes, the NIA did adopt a different approach. Apparently, you know, uh, they had completed the investigation in this respect because shortly after he was produced for remand, they filed a charge sheet too. So basically, and, and it's not exactly right that they didn't question him because apparently he was questioned some four or five times in Ranchi uh, prior to this. I think one of the sessions lasted more than six hours. So, okay. uh, so. Uh, it's normally we expect an investigating agency, you know, probing an alleged terrorist plot would seek the custody of a person. But it turned out that all they needed him was to put him in jail because they felt that he was similarly placed with uh, the other accused who were already in prison. In fact, there was a long gap between the uh, arrest of one set of accused uh, in, I think, August 2018 uh, or was it June? I'm not sure. And uh, he was uh, arrested as late as October 2020. So right. it is indeed a surprise that when they didn't want him for custodial interrogation, when the investigation was complete, when the charge sheet was almost ready to be filed, uh, that they chose to do this. But then they, uh, this is how some agencies work. You know, the, usually, you know, central agencies have, uh, sometimes they do, mainly in corruption cases and other things, where they don't arrest at all, that they fa fa straight away file a charge sheet. And when the accused is summoned, and uh, when he faces the court for the first time, the court remands him for custody, forcing him to seek bail. This is how, you know, it normally happens with CBI and all that. In this case, they did start a series of arrests very early on in the investigation. But then that was the Pune police and this is the NIA. Maybe it's just a difference in approach. But it certainly, you know, warrants consideration why a person whose custodial interrogation was uh, not required and against whom a charge sheet was already filed. And in view of his age and health, why he could not have been, you know, why they could not have at least... Uh, agreed to bail, uh, you know, at the initial stage. Right. So, I mean, as you have uh, articulated it so well, I mean, why uh, would you need to have in jail a person whose custodial interrogation is not required? Okay. So, this is the question. And and what was the Bombay High Court's problem, given this context, uh, in giving him bail? Uh, see, let us look at it, you know, in sequentially. Initially, you know, he applied for bail on both merits and medical grounds. Uh, before the NIA court. Uh, under the NIA Act, only special courts can try them, which of course is only the rank of a sessions court. And uh, the NIA court rejected bail on merits, uh, basically because, you know, the trial courts are inherently inhibited by uh, the, uh, the Act itself. Section 43D5 of the Act uh, says that if the court has reason to believe that there are 
allegations against the person of prima facie true, they should not grant bail. Uh, so, uh, and then when he came to the Bombay High Court, it appeared, at least from newspaper reports, that they were not against the, uh, releasing him on bail. Uh, in fact, I read one report that said that on March 1 or something, when they issued notice to the NIA to respond to the uh, bail plea on medical grounds, uh, they said he is entitled to bail. So they probably only want uh, issued notice so that you know the NIA could respond because that is another feature of the act that you cannot uh, grant bail without giving an opportunity to the public prosecutor to give his response. So uh, are, uh, the mystery here is why it took so long. If the notice was issued in March, and what happened was until May, uh, only the some sort of medical treatment orders and medical treatment were given from time to time, and they did not. They were repeatedly considering medical reports uh, and arguments from the NAA and uh, and from both sides. In fact, but somehow it did not materialize into a concrete order of bail until I think it was May 28, when the court decided that he can be allowed to. Uh, be hospitalized at uh, a private hospital. Uh, but the government, at, even at that stage, the NIA opposed it, saying that he can either be treated. Uh, in fact, initially, the point of view was that the Taloja Central Jail itself was uh, e equipped to treat him, which, of course, was questioned. Uh, and uh, later, they agreed that he could be uh, treated at a government hospital, but at, at no point should, be, should he be taken to a private hospital. Ultimately, the court overruled them on that limited point and directed his admission in uh, uh, the missionary hospital, I think, uh, into, to which he was ultimately admitted. Right. So, so we have, we've had this uh, very uh, baffling uh, kind of delay, uh, which made the entire situation worse uh, for this man. So, I mean, this raises another question, like, is there a fundamental problem with the judicial system that that sort of disables it from responding in accordance with uh, you know, basic humanitarian values and human rights principles? Or is there a problem with the law itself, which that is the UAPA here, uh, which is sort of inhibiting a humanitarian response? Uh, see, it's very difficult to generalize. First of all, the, the inhibition in the law is quite well known uh, because there is in fact a very uh, far-reaching Supreme Court judgment that prevents a person uh, charged with certain sections of the UAPA from applying for bail, uh, from uh, obtaining bail uh, because of this uh, rule that if it is uh, of the opinion that there is a prima facie case or it, the charges are true, that they should be uh, not released on bail. But at the same time, the courts indeed have, uh, you know, uh, uh, tried to sidestep or overcome this rule and grant bail by invoking some constitutional provisions. In fact, there are two or three judgments in which UAPA bail has been granted. And one, uh, uh, one concerned, uh, the, you know, uh, the idea that more than 200 or 250 witnesses were yet to be examined and that will be too long a delay and that interferes with the uh, fundamental right of the suspect to be, uh, to have an early trial. And therefore, they were inclined to grant bail. Uh, uh, another point is that, you know, uh, even when the court is inclined to grant bail on medical ground, the state usually tries to offer uh, the best treatment possible while in custody as an alternative to being released on bail. It depends on individual judges on whether they deem the condition of the accused to be so bad that he requires bail as well as hospitalization or whether hospitalization is enough. In, in fact, Bombay High Court in the same case uh, granted bail to Varavara Rao on medical grounds. 
and in fact they laid down an interesting norm in that they said that medical bail cannot be denied uh, when uh, the court deems that his condition is so bad that it to keep him in jail will endanger his life or that the atmosphere in the jail is not conducive for his well-being or survival i mean that is a fairly broad principle and which could have been invoked in this case also and i am sure that you know if an earlier or faster hearing had taken place the benefit of accrued to father stands for me also somehow it took more than 2 months for this matter to be taken up and in fact on the day of his death you know there was an advance that the hearing was advanced by a day in view of his deteriorating condition but even that was not good enough yeah i think uh, this point you had mentioned about uh, whether jail could uh, endanger someone who's already suffering from medical ailments yeah. i think early on soon after his arrest when he had i think first applied for bail uh, for the stand swami had said that you know uh, i i mean uh, yeah. until recently i was able to uh, write yeah. and, and and i could eat by myself and i could go for a walk but now that i've spent uh, you know this much time in jail my condition has become worse and i mean i somebody needs to feed me i can't uh, do anything on my own so there is a clear uh, record of uh, deterioration given the fact that he suffers from parkinson's and so on yes. so why wasn't uh, the judiciary able to take note of this and uh, uh, and and decide accordingly yes it's a baffling question because he himself personally appeared and voiced these opinions in fact he had right. to speak through someone who helped him uh, you know understand the court's questions uh It, there really is no answer for that i suppose you know the uh, there probably was a delaying tactic by the naa trying to you know raise small questions and asking for more reports and all that but ultimately the court could have you know as you said uh, uh, you know formed formed an opinion on that day itself but you know we have a system in which we thrive on adjournments each time a question crops up you'll say that we will consider it at the next hearing they were probably ruminating over the exact nature of his condition and adjourned it by until the next hearing and so on until he passed away right right and uh, actually in fact uh, just a few days ago i mean uh, father stan swami had moved the bombay high court challenging uh, the section you had referred to a little while back section 43d5 of the uapa Uh, stating that this section actually violates articles 14 and 21 of the constitution by making it impossible for someone accused under uapa to get bail and his his bail plea argued that when i'm quoting from it a presumption of innocence is a fundamental tenet of our criminal jurisprudence and is a human right yeah. uh quote yeah. close but making it uh, but by making it impossible to get bail Uh, this section inverts on its head the presumption of innocence right so how justified uh, kv do you think it is to say that the bail provisions under uapa invert the presumption of innocence well it does do that because basically uh, you know for the since the 1980s we have had a, a series of special laws which uh, are premised on the assumption that some crimes cannot be dealt with with the ordinary law of land uh we have the as of now we have the narcotics drugs and psychotropic substances act and the unlawful activities act which have this sort of uh, inversion of the presumption basically you know it says that uh, if there is a prima facie case against you you cannot be granted bail and uh, at the same time the courts have also laid down a rule that you cannot deeply scrutinize the evidence at that stage uh in fact in the uh, uh, supreme court that i had a uh, judgment that i had earlier referred to which is nia versus uh, batali 
the court had laid down a rule that while considering bail uh, and while considering whether a prima facie case of the allegations being true is before the court, the court should not uh, embark on an appreciation of the evidence. It should not comment on the evidence. What it should take into account is just a broad range of probabilities. If the case of the prosecution is probably true, you should deny bail. This is the rule laid down by the court. And you can imagine the pressure that this sort of a provision puts on the uh, trial court, which is invariably, uh, you know, a sessions court uh, of the rank of a sessions court judge. It, 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 it's very difficult for the judge to, you know, to overcome our, uh, this rule and embark on a scrutiny that should neither be true nor should it come to a, a conclusion without, you know, formulating a subjective opinion that the case is not true. So bail becomes, uh, you know, procedurally very difficult. And that is why even in those few cases in which bail has been granted and the latest being the Delhi High Court judgment on uh, uh, the three activists, uh, they managed to do it by, you know, adopting a position that is not in conflict with this particular judgment. In some cases, they have said the probability of the, the case being delayed for too long. For instance, in the Najib case, I said that there were 250 or so witnesses and there, there was no possibility of the trial being completed in the next three or four years. And therefore, they granted bail. It, uh, two or three other smaller cases are there. On under UAPA itself. And in the uh, Natasha case, you know, what the court ruled was that they can uh, grant bail if there is absolutely no prima facie material to link them to a terrorist act. And there are questions that are raised whether the Delhi riots, uh, the, 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 the UAPA case against them arose out of a Delhi riots case. And whether the, the, the riots uh, and the cases arising out of them can be brought under the rubric of uh, the UAPA itself. This is a fundamental question and the court decided that there was no case and the, uh, there was no terrorist act involved and therefore they were entitled to bail. And this is all, the, the courts repeatedly are forced to resort to this sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, an approach that would be uh, make it conducive for bail. But at the same time, you know, you should remember that uh, the inversion or uh, the, the inhibition statutory limit on grant of bail is there in many laws. In fact, the CRPC itself says that in cases that involve death or life imprisonment, the court should not grant bail uh, if there is a prima facie case against them. It, the, the word true is uh, in the UAPA Act. It's a CRPC doesn't say that it should be prima facie true, but it says that uh, Section 437 says that bail can be granted uh, or should not be granted if uh, uh, the person is guilty, a prima facie guilty of a, an offence that involves death or life imprisonment, which probably brings in only offences involving murder and the like. There are only there are very few provisions in the IPC that involved you know murder or uh, involve a death sentence or a life sentence. So basically, uh, the idea of limiting the grant of bail is inherent in the statute. So where do we get this uh, this notion which keeps getting Tom Tom from time to time saying yeah, bail is the rule, jail is the exception? Yes. See, basically, it's it's that is true of most cases. See, so there are various uh, you know uh, levels at which bail is uh, granted, and uh, one of them is that you know if there is a, a, a no possibility of the per person fleeing from justice, 
and on the condition that you will not intimidate witnesses or tamper with evidence any person can be granted bail if he has a you know uh, a known uh, residential address and if there is a bond or something that ensures its availability for a trial in future and that is uh, all that is needed to grant bail in most cases and uh, in some cases like sections 41 uh, of the CRPC imposes some limitations or arrest itself. It says that uh, for any offence that is uh, that attracts an imprisonment that is less than three years, there need not be any arrest at all. And instead, the person can be summoned for an oral inquiry. And that is a, that sort of. A, and the second thing is, of course, we have the issue of statutory bail, which, of course, if the, on the failure of the person of the police to file a charge sheet after a certain time, sixty days in respect of ordinary offences and ninety days in respect of serious offences, there is what is called default bail. On the after ninety days, the accused is automatically released on bail if the investigation is not completed. UAPA also has a similar provision, but unfortunately, what it says that the public prosecutor can file a report stating the reasons why the charge sheet could not be uh, filed in time, and then the uh, court can grant time up to 180 days. That's a six-month okay. period. So this is how you know this. I uh, will explain the you know the regime of special legislation to combat extremism has always been around with us. Okay, this particular UAPA provision itself has a history. See, originally the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act was passed in 1967 only to ban outlaw, or outlaw some organizations. Previously, uh, some organizations were banned under the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1952. But in a Madras case, it was ruled that the provision to ban was unconstitutional because it provided no judicial remedy. So uh, thereafter, the Unlawful Activities Act was enacted in which there is a provision that when an organization is declared unlawful, the government should constitute a tribunal within six months to rule whether it is a valid ban or not. And that is a judicial forum usually manned by a high court judge or a retired high court judge. And uh, this act continued and then we had uh, the 1980s to combat uh, Punjab terrorism. The government came up with TADA, the Terrorist Activities and Disrupt Terrorist and Disruptive Activities Act, 1985, I think. So basically, this act was the first one to, you know, bring about the extraordinary or uh, provisions which modified the Criminal Procedure Code. Even there, the provision for a charge sheet was extended from the time limit for a charge sheet was extended from 90 days to one year. And uh, I think uh, in Section 15. Confession to an officer not below the rank of a superintendent of police was made admissible in court. That is a major inversion of the principle against custodial self-incrimination. And right. uh, uh, see, that act ruled the roost and uh, for many years about. But thereafter, you know, uh, I think the VP Singh regime took a historic decision to let the Tada lapse. In fact, Tada is applicable only for two years, and it was extended every two years. For about for about ten time for about six or seven times, and when the act was allowed to lapse, the Vajpayee regime felt that once again there was a revival of terrorism, and they required a certain uh, special law. So this time, in the, they enacted the, uh, you know, remember that the Prevention of Terrorism Act or POTA, and POTA had uh, features similar to TADA, in which you know they. Uh, they modified some of the provisions. For instance, the time for the charge sheet was reduced to six months from one year. But the uh, provision for uh, custodial, uh, you know, uh, for statements being admissible remained. 
and it took about in just a matter of a few years there was evidence that pota was being misused and once again it was a tamil nadu case the arrest and imprisonment of uh, the mdmk general secretary vaiko under pota for participating in a meeting allegedly in support of the ltte and uh, 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 he was then an ally of the bjp of the nda regime at the center and uh, the the, uh, the regime took a view that you know that it uh, you know the case was false but it took uh, when the upa government came to power they repealed pota but once again what happened was uh, the effects of 911 uh, across the world was felt india was you know party to the uh, some of the conventions arising out of security council resolution i don't remember the right number right now but you should remember that you know after the 911 incident uh, the security council took a hard line against terrorism and there was a global uh, movement against uh, you know for uh, 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 there was a global anti-terror mood, if I may call it. And thereafter, the, the UPA government amended the Unlawful Activities Act to incorporate a series of changes to give effect to the UN resolutions. And uh, the present provisions are, 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 you know, arise out of that. And of course, it was subsequently amended even last year to make individuals uh, you know, outlawed under this particular act also. Now an individual can be designated a terrorist under UAPA, a provision that was introduced only in 2019. So right. this is the history, the background in which, you know, legislation on anti-terror laws came came about. And one of them, repeatedly, even the Supreme Court has emphasized that we agree with the proposition that certain offenses require a modified application. Those judgments are even quoted in the Delhi High Court judgment. And that is where the, the court took the view that in case you are arresting someone under a draconian legislation like that, the, you have to be very strict about what sort of person is roped in. It can, you cannot use it to rope in all and sundry. And the mischief of the act should be confined to those who are actually involved in violence and are armed terrorism. This is the broad views of the uh, the set of views of the judiciary on whether to you know treat a person under uh, as an accused under UAPA. If so, whether he is entitled to bail and why bail is invariably denied in most of these cases. Right, KV, you 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 had mentioned about this variations in terms of how long they can keep a person in in custody or in jail. Uh, before a charge sheet is filed and so yeah. on. But in the Bhima Koregaon case, I think I mean, Father's Science Army is gone, but the others have been in jail for three years. Ah, yes, but they have filed a charge sheet. In um, I think there are multiple charge sheets in this case. I'm not very sure about the exact details. But uh, the denial of bail in most of these cases is for the entire duration of the trial. That is, until the trial is disposed of, they are unlikely to get bail. Unless you know a court steps in at some point of time, and uh, so it's possible that you may you may you may spend the entire duration of a potential sentence in jail before the trial is over. That happens a lot. Yes, yes, uh, uh, yeah, it's possible. It's possible, especially you know with uh, uh, lesser offenses of assisting at uh, or an act in aid of a terrorist act, which may attract you know much less than the life sentence prescribed for a terrorist act or death. So it is possible. Yes, it is possible for a person to spend the uh, to have uh, to be an under trial for a period longer than the sentence that will possibly impose on them. 
Okay, wonderful. Now, I this let's go back to the Delhi High Court uh, yeah. judgment in the Natasha Narwal case, where you said that they used the fact that, uh, or rather the approach, where they said there is no prima facie evidence uh, linking uh, uh, the person to terrorist activities or whatever, and therefore uh, you can give bail, and they granted bail. Now, yeah. in the Stanislavski case, someone like say the UN Special Rapporteur Mary Lawler. Yeah, she has said that he was being held in jail on unfounded charges. That is yeah. number one. Yeah. Then secondly, there is a forensic report by the U.S.-based firm Arsenal Consulting, which has said that more than 30 documents have been planted on the electronic devices of the Bima Koregaon accused. No, these are all uh, not just reports and statements. But uh, was there was there any attempt to uh, on the side of the judiciary to take cognizance of these aspects and consider? you know whether uh, there is any scope for doing something similar to what the delhi high court did you know prima facie what what does it say you know and if there is any scope for bail on uh, merit no i uh, see if you notice there, no one in this case has got may bail on merits uh, okay. uh when sudha bharadwaj approached the uh, supreme court on medical grounds so you know this was when the uh, pandemic was just started spreading the court made an extraordinary observation that we will not consider medical bail because uh, this is not uh, accompanied with a medical report but at the same time they observed that you have a very good case on merits why don't you uh, approach the trial court itself i mean this is very interesting in that you know they did consider that she could have a, a bail on merits at the same time it, it never came about i think in one case in most of the cases the first application on merits has been rejected and the trial court uh, has consistently taken the view that the charge is prima facie true so if the supreme court has said that there is a good case for bail on merits then why didn't that uh, sort of come about in the lower court uh, see basically these are observations which uh, uh, which are not binding on the lower court now basically these are oral observation obiter not part of an you know uh, a written order it's not a ruling as such but okay. it is certainly possible for the trial courts to take this approach but in practical terms you know you should consider the larger mood of the judiciary until recently you know there was an uh, quite a lot of evidence that the uh, the court appeared beholden to the executive the court appeared to evade its uh, you know the courts in general appeared you know to Uh, evade the prime responsibilities of a deep scrutiny of various charges or various claims by the government it is only after the pandemic that you know uh, a certain mood set in when the, the courts felt that the executive should be held to account on some aspects at least so one by one you know various high courts have started questioning them it that uh, approach has not percolated to cases under uapa so far and yeah there are indeed a couple of cases where i've said that they have cited the possibility of a much delayed trial to grant bail and these are constitutional remedies in fact they are not uh, uh, these orders were not issued when they were considering uh, you know bail under the crpc these were passed in in the course of writ petitions in fact this is one of the rigidities of the judicial system itself that when you apply for medical bail they don't consider merits when you apply for bail on merits they do not take note of medical uh, grounds uh, when you are sitting as a bail court they do not exercise their constitutional powers or they opt for certain constitutional remedies like violation of fundamental rights 
or a threat to life and liberty. These are all considered only under its jurisdiction. Most, even high courts, when they are sitting as, uh, you know, on the criminal side, they do not take note of these things. It's only the Supreme Court that is empowered to do, you know, extraordinary, to grant extraordinary remedies. And that has not been frequently done so. So I suppose the, Father Stan Swami's death could be an inflection point in our approach to UAPA cases and an approach to bail, the bail jurisprudence itself. I suppose uh, age, sickness, infirmity and an imminent uh, threat to one's life in custody could be grounds for bail in future, which was indeed cited by the Bombay High Court when it granted bail to Varavara Rao. Right. In, uh, in fact, the father Stan Swami in his bail plea in, uh, in March, he had, uh, he had said uh, that he was being targeted by the NA because of his writings and work related to caste and land struggles of the people. Yeah. Now, uh, coming back to bail uh, jurisprudence and related aspects, what recourse under the law, at least theoretically, uh, does someone, say an activist, for example, have if the state actually does something like this, that is target someone under UAPA for their rights-based work? Uh, see, basically, it requires a constitutional court to remedy this, which is what Justice Chandrachud said in his dissenting judgment in this very case. You recall that this uh, on the day uh, Sudha Bharadwaj and a few were sought to be arrested. Uh, I think five people were actually arrested. That is uh, Gautam and uh, uh, Shoma Sen and Rona Bins and all that. When they were arrested, uh, the, uh, Professor Romila Thapar and a few many other public personalities approached the Supreme Court directly under Article 32. And there was a question whether it was maintainable because uh, they are outsiders to the investigation. Uh, but later, the petition itself was supported by the accused. And uh, thereafter, the uh, the court, of course, uh, uh, Chief Justice Mishra and Justice Kanvilkar uh, went with the prosecution case that uh, there can be no fetters of this investigation at this stage, and they dismissed it. At the same time, uh, Justice Chandrachud directly ruled on this point that where there is a possibility that uh, it's a prosecution motivated by uh, you know a desire to suppress dissent the court can indeed interfere and uh, unfortunately you know his dissenting judgment was of no value as with the minority and i suppose this is the broad approach that is that will be conducive for cases of this nature uh, but at the same time you know uh, they cannot, uh, these cases will not withstand a deep judicial scrutiny as is in the case of Akhil Gogol. He has been uh, discharged in two uh, UAPA cases in uh, Assam. Akhil Gogol is an MLA and an activist uh, in uh, Assam. And uh, uh, initially, you, actually, he was, dis uh, uh, you know, he was denied bail. But when it, come, when it came to framing of charges, this is at the stage where the court will necessarily have to rule whether there is enough evidence to send a person for trial. And in both cases, he has been discharged. And remember, discharge is a superior form of proving one's innocence uh, to the conventional form of acquittal. And acquittal is done after uh, a detailed trial, after deposition of witnesses. But a discharge means that there was never any evidence even to send a person for trial. It is basically a rejection of the charge sheet. And that has happened in two cases. So it is possible that, you know, when due process is followed, that at some point of time, they can be, uh, you know, uh, granted relief in the form of discharge. But bail is something that we will have to seriously contemplate because 
most cases take a long time for framing of charges or to reach the stage of framing of charges. Right, right. So uh, finally, to uh, wind up, KV, okay, so Stan Swami is, I mean, uh, is, is said to be India's oldest ever prisoner to be held on terror charges. Yeah. And his death has called into question uh, and also called into accountability our criminal justice uh, system. So uh, any final thoughts on uh, where we go from here? I mean, the, the Akhil Gogoi case and the dissenting note by Justice Chandrachud seem like two uh, sources of some hope and light here. But uh, where, where exactly should one start if we are to make this due process which you refer to a more responsive, you know, like sort of insulate the prisoners from excessive delay and and so on, and make it a little bit more alongside uh, humanitarian and human rights principles. See, by and large, the onus is on the judiciary. It is possible for the judiciary to expedite hearings, to not uh, grant too many adjournments sought by the prosecution. Uh, and uh, our, the question of accountability will always be, you know, raised only in a theoretical framework in post facto criticism of a judgment or something. But there can never be, you know, uh, uh, a process by which you can institutionalize a speedy trial. You, you should remember that there are several ringing judgments of the Supreme Court that call for speedy trials. Uh, there are fast track courts and fast track courts are uh, used to deliver, you know, judgments in a week or two in a, a few cases where there is only one accused. And that, of course, was frowned upon because it's very difficult, you know, to believe a judgment that is rendered. Most of them were convictions rendered in a seven-day trial, eight-day trial and all that. Uh, I mean, there are eight days from the arrest of the accused, not from the commencement of the trial. There have been a few instances and that, uh, that process has now come to an end. And uh, courts have been cautioned against excessive zeal in uh, uh, granting speedy trials. But the conventional due process trial itself should be expedited. It is not, you know, there is a huge gulf between, you know, the rhetoric of the uh, various Supreme Court and High Court judgments on individual liberty, on personal liberty, on the rights of the prisoner, on the rights of the accused, on, 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 the, on the need for a humane approach uh, to criminal jurisprudence. There are a number of law commission reports, there are a number of judgments. But when it comes to actual practice, the, it all depends on the individual judge on how far he accommodates the prosecution request and how far they sail with the police version of the events. And it's essentially something that should come internally from the judiciary. And probably the only way out is uh, the appointment process itself should have, you know, uh, to should incorporate uh, elements that will be conducive to bringing on board judges who will have such an approach. Yeah, so I think, yeah, thank you so much, KV. I think we have to wait and see when, if ever, uh, the rhetoric about liberty and the rights of individual prisoners get translated into practice uh, in our judiciary. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts uh, and uh, understanding on this very significant matter. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. This is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu.